0: One of the benefits thank you, of the expository preaching is that you don't pick the theme you want to preach. And actually, if I would have had to choose this theme, probably I would have not picked this theme to preach today. today. But what a blessing is to know that God is the one who gives us every single week the theme that's going to be to be preached. So there is not a personal agenda here, but a uh, word agenda. God is driven every single week the theme that's going to be preached. And today, I will invite you to open or turn on your Bible on Matthew chapter 18 and the continuation of the series, Your Kingdom Come. And I believe that most of us, if not all of us, but I believe that most of us believe that the Bible is the word of God. We believe that the Bible is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible, brothers and sisters, is our authority. It's authority for Christians. We also believe that the gospel is a call for people to repent of their sins and find forgiveness in Christ. And all of us that are here know that this is the only word that we are called and we should submit to. So today, the text of today is one of the texts that has been terribly misunderstood and horribly misapplied by the church and all over the world. And the reason for that is that we tend to disconnect it from its immediate context. And this passage cannot be isolated from what Jesus has been teaching to his disciples. So if you were here last week, you would know that this passage continues the line of thinking from last week's passage. So in order to grasp the tone and the spirit of the text, we must first understand the idea that Jesus has been unpacking to his disciples. In the former verses, Jesus tells his disciples that the way to greatness is found in humility. So grab this word because we will need it to apply this text to our lives. And use this word humility, humility, to see this text, but also to see the need to apply to yourself. If you were here last week, you will notice that this humility is shown in a childlike dependence on God, dependence on God, and in receiving true children of God in order to serve them and protect them. And when you read the previous verses, you may ask why. And Jesus said. Because the will of God is that none of his children should be lost. None of his children should be lost. And one of God's provision for the church is the text that we have today. Is this process of restoration, the process of discipline. This is a process that has been abused a lot, as I told you. Many churches have caused a lot of damage to the body of Christ by by misusing this passage. But nonetheless, it is a process that is taught by Jesus himself that is to help to deal with sin in the church. It is a process that helps restore the believer and tell apart the believer from the non-believers. Differently... From what many of us have thought or have thought, Jesus gives us here a way to patiently, lovingly, and gently guide a lost sheep back into the fellowship with the church. So, I invite you to read with me the 20 verses that we have today. And I pray that you pray that God use this text to help us to grow as a Christian and as a follower, follower of Jesus Christ. Matthew 18, verse 15 to 35. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. I lie alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen... Shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you if two or you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathering my name, there am I among them. Again, my dear brother and friend Peter. (laughs) And then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say it to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished, who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one of his one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. They were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their masters all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you plead me, and you should not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts, all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Hmm, what an easy text to preach. eh? Well, Jesus is clear, Jesus is showing the path of restoration. Jesus is showing the way that the church should confront sin with grace at the point that this confrontation may sanctify the person that has sinned, and the person confronted may grow spiritually. But also, this text teaches us that it's a way to purify the church. In the light of this text, I would like to give you three characteristics of the church that restores, and that's the title of the sermon. The church that restores. And three characteristic, characteristics that may serve us to consider our lives in the light of this text and also consider what we do when a brother or sister in Christ sin. The first characteristic of a church that restores is the church that embraces confronting sin. It's a church that embraces confronting sins. Read verse 15 to 17 again. I want you to read it because it's God's word. And I want you to hear from God, not from me, but from God. If your brother sins against you, go ahead and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. You see, what is the purpose? You have gained your brother. That's the, pro- the purpose of any confrontation is to gain your brother. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you. That every church may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I want you to observe carefully this portion. I want you to observe what this text teaches us. The first thing that this confrontation is supposed to happen in the context of the local church among people that claim to be Christians and followers of Jesus Christ. If you read these two verses, you will notice that Jesus is using the word church. In the Gospel of Matthew, the word church appeared three times. Do you want to know who used it? Jesus. Jesus. And this time he uses twice and because he wants us to, to know that it happened in the context of the church among people that claim to be Christians. Another thing that I want you to see is that these instructions, these instructions are not for a response to an emer, emergency situation. It should happen in a normal daily habit that help us to grow together in holiness and mature in our faith. When we have a community of brothers and sisters that understand the gospel and understand that the church is a community of sinners, restored and redeemed by God's grace, you shouldn't be surprised if someone sinned against you. But I don't know if you can see in the text That Jesus is clearly addressing this when the church formally, the ecclesia, wasn't established yet. Because now we have the whole counsel of God. We know that in Acts 2 is when the church, boom, is materialized. It just takes place. It just established in Acts 2 as he promised. But my question is, what is, the, what, what is that? What, why the church, why it should happen in the context of the local church among people that claim to be Christian? Brothers and sisters, because the church was meant to live in community. Was meant to live in community. To serve one another. To pray for one another. To confront one another. To stir up one another. In fact the word one another appears more than 50 times in the new testament love one another forgive one another confront one another which tells you that the church is a community where when you need where you need one another you need me i need you we need everybody in the body of Christ, we need people around us that help us to deal with our sins in gracious and a loving way and confronting our sins. And I know that many of us, none of us, probably, we don't like that idea. Why? Because we have been shaped by this culture that says, "Keep your bubble safe. Don't allow anyone to come into your life. And the culture has shaped us and tells us, "Hey, this is your bubble." Don't allow any intrusive person to come to your life, but not the church. We don't want people to burst your bubble, our bubbles. But listen what Jesus said. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, and actually in the earliest manuscript, the word against you is not there. We imply it because of the question that Peter does. But if your brother sins against you, go ahead and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If you read it, the first step is to come in humility with the goal in mind, with the purpose in mind that you are confronting sins, not because you feel like you're better than others, but you want to restore your brother. He's part of the body of Christ. The goal in mind, because your hope is that as a Christian, that person repents from his sins. This is a personal ministry that has the goal of restoring your brother. The goal is to gain him. And a church that restores is a church that embraces confronting sin. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, when we avoid the first step, and we go to another brother's sister first. We are exchanging the ministry of restoration for the ministry of gossip. My question is how do we you do this? In what way should a brothers' sin be dealt with? Well, how should we how should be our approach? Pa, Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 24-26 he says and the lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone able, able able to teach patiently enduring evil correcting his opponents with gentleness god may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their sins and escape from the snare of the devil devil, after being captured by him to do his will. We should talk to this person as soon as possible in private with a gentle, patient, and loving spirit. What would you do? Well, we come with a humble posture, speak honestly about your concerns, and listen to how that person responds. You may listen and see if there is repentance And if there is a desire to restore things, it's like be like Jesus to them, seeking to take the sheep back to home. That's why this text is connected with the previous verses. Remember what is the goal. It's to win. It's to gain your brother. And the reason was given in verse 14. Verse 14 says, it's not the will of the Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. That's why he has provided this process of restoration. So every time I see a brother or sister going astray, I don't ignore them. I, as a Christian, I am called to come with the right posture and confront these brothers and sisters with love. We are hoping that that person repents because the Holy Spirit is supposed to, is there. He's a Christian. If that person is a Christian, the Holy Spirit is there. Showing him his sin. But what we do if he doesn't repent and continues in his sins? Well, Jesus tells us. Read verse 16. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two other, others along with you. That every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Jesus is saying if there is not agreement or if after a time of waiting there are not changes, then it is Jesus who, who, who says that additional measures should be taken. Jesus tells us, try it again. But now, this time, bring one or two witnesses, believers. And let me tell you something. When Jesus says that every charge may be established, you know what Jesus is doing? Jesus is following instructions. Jesus is doing what the Bible tells him to do. Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So basically, Jesus is following what the Bible and the Scripture says. You know why? Because the only hope that we have as a Christian to see a person restore, save, or heal is when we do what the Bible says. And Jesus, that's why he recommended the Scripture. Okay, if the first step doesn't work, bring two witnesses according to Deuteronomy chapter 19. When someone comes to us and tells us that we are wrong or that we are in sin, what is our first reaction? I can tell you because of my own heart, because of my pride. My first reaction is to justify my sin or deny it. It is not like that. If you don't believe me, ask your spouse. What we do. We don't listen to the church. We don't pay attention. And we think that someone else is at fault. But when two or three respectable Christian Christians come to us about our sins, the situation changes. The situation change. In, in a situation like this, it will be unresonable to deny the sin or to make excuses. That is... Why this second step is here. And we must do what the Bible tells us to do. But what happens if nothing changes? If there is no repentance? What happens? Step number three. Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. Do you see Jesus' intention to go through all the steps to help this person to come to his sense? Do you see the love, the kindness, the patience, how patiently he is? And now he's inviting the assembly, assembly, the congregation, the ecclesia, to participate in the process. Yes, sometimes the Lord does want the church to be aware of our sins. So, they can call us to account for what we have done. And the reason is that our sin does not only affect us individually, it also affects the whole body of Christ. We all know here that we are part of the body of Christ. Every time, every time we sin against another brother, we are affecting the body of Christ, don't we? My sins affect the body of Christ because I am part of the body of Christ. Jesus include the church in this process. Why? Why? I think that there is a reason why Jesus wanted to inform the church. First, for the brother's sake, for the church's sake, and for the glory of Christ's sake. Because when a person does not respond to the confrontation of one brother, two or three brothers... Neither the church. Basically, he's saying, I am right and everybody's wrong. Now the church is ready to get involved in the process of restoration, in this path of restoration. So now the church can pray for this brother and sister. Like the church, more brothers and sisters can come to these brothers who is in need of repentance because the goal is to gain the brother. Don't forget it. Don't miss it. The body of Christ, the church, needs to know that one of its members is acting in sin. is not acting in humility as a follower of Jesus Christ. So now, what is to be done if there is not change, if there is not repentance? I thank God that Jesus tells us what to do. Verse 17. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a gentile and a tax collector, which means as an unconverted person. Gentile. Every time the Jews referred to the gentile, they, they saw them and they called them dogs. Dogs because they kill their babies. They sacrificed them to um, worship their false gods. And when they called someone, you are a Gentile, it was in a very disrespectful way. And after so many attempts to restore his brother or sister in Christ, Jesus said that if he still does not work, if it doesn't work, it is because he's not a follower of Christ. He's not obeying He's not paying attention. The process of confronting another sin is a process of sanctification for that person, for us, brother. For us as a believer, but also it's a process of purification for the church. It purges the church. And Jesus says, hmm, exclude him. Not from the services. Invite them to the service." But not consider him as a part of the body of Christ. Consider him as a tax collector, as a Gentile. It may sound hard, I know. It may sound hard. But do not forget all the opportunities this person had to repent. Repent is one of the clear evidence that someone is a Christian. That's what, when Jesus came, says the kingdom of God is here. Repent. John the Baptist says, repent. Paul says, repent. Repentance is one of the evidence. And later we found Paul leading with someone sin and followed Jesus' instruction. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that is not tolerated. Even among pagans. What is happening, Paul? For a man has his, wa- his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Church, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. If the church do not confront the sin of a brother or sister, it's an evidence of Arrogance. Pride, fear of men. Is an evidence of lack of love for the body of Christ. It's an evidence of lack of obedience. And we know this final step is for the good of the person and the benefits of the church. And you may say, "Why? How, how do you say that's good for the? It's good for that person." Well, because I think at the end A process like this, this person or any one of us may consider if we are Christian or not. And I will say this with fear and love. The the worst thing that could ever happen to a person, the worst thing that could ever happen to a person is to think that he's Christian when he really is not. Why? Because you may spend your life coming to every service, giving to, uh, to the church, serving in the church, and then when you die, you will open your eyes in hell. And Paul knows this. And that's why Paul, in the second letter to Corinthians, he says, hey, everyone, examine yourself to see if yourself, if your faith is genuine. Test yourself. And it's a good thing To examine our walk in Christ. Because one of the evidence of a Christian, of we as a Christian, is repentance, is humility, is obedience. So the path to restoration begins confronting a person's sins first on an individual level and then on the corporate level. And this process of discipline is a process of restoration, it's a process of love. If we are Christian the Lord will use it to correct us and make us more more humble. So then, if someone brings to you your brings to your attention a sin of yours, receive it with humility. Receive it with humility with an open heart and as an evidence of God's love for you and also as a great opportunity to examine your faith. At the first It will not be a reason for joy, but it will bring forth fruits. Hebrews 12, 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it will yield the peaceful fruits of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So don't run from it. Give the Lord the time to use this process to help you to grow spiritually. A church that restores is a church that embraces confronting sin. Second, it's a church that follows God's direction. It's a church that follows God's direction. Read verse 18 to 20. Truly, remember, every time that Jesus says truly, it means like what I'm saying, I mean it. Okay? Truly, I say to you. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask it, will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I, am I among them. And before we go further into this passage, I would like to explain what this verse does not say. I need to explain it because my context, my background. Unfortunately, verses 19 and 20 have often been misinterpreted and used to manipulate people. One of those misused is the name it and claim it. Have you heard about that? This heresy says that Jesus promises that the Father will do whatever we ask of him as long as we have a group of people praying for it. And you know that it doesn't work in that way. Actually, try to do it. Actually, it's not a good parenting, giving to your children everything they ask. Moreover, by naming it and claiming it, I am saying that every time I do that, what I'm saying is that I don't need God. Or even worse, I am saying that I can control God. I am saying that God works for me I am saying that God is my servant. So if anyone comes to you saying, let's claim it and name it and God will do it," this, let's, put, let's gather two, three people. And using this text, this is not what it means. Basically what basically he's what saying is, I am endorsing your decision to go through this path of restoration. What Jesus is saying is, the same words that he said to Peter. Previous chapters. He gave to Peter the key of heaven. Whatever you bind will be bound. Whatever you lose will be loosed. His authority, he's given to the church authority to deal with this process. And he's saying, if you gather to do that, I am backing you up. And Jesus takes restoring the lost sheep so seriously that he tells his disciple. Representing God's judgment on earth. What a blessing is to know that God endures these actions, the path of restoration. Why? Because God takes seriously sin. He nailed in the cross his son because of our sins. And we shouldn't treat lightly our sins. When we confront somebody else's sin and we call people to repent, trying to restore them, we are doing on earth what is done in heaven. And let me tell you something so you may understand. The rabbis of that time understood binding and loosening as having to do with sin. If somebody repented their sin, he was what? Loosened. If they didn't repent, they were bound in sin. So when we confront somebody who is, has sinned and that person does not repent, that person continues to be bound. He doesn't repent. He's doing the same thing. Heaven has already judged them. But if we confront a sinner and repent, we can say that he is free from his sin because of is repentance. If you repent, in a few words, if you repent, you are free from your sins. According to First John 1, 19, one nine. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. We are only saying that, we are only saying what is being declared in heaven is what is happening on earth. Heaven supports the process, the path of restoration, the process of restoring a brother, and also supports the discipline in the church. And it could be the son of us, we don't feel comfortable with this idea, with the idea of confronting sin. But thanks God, that is not a main idea. It's good to know that it's not an idea of any of us. Is an idea from God. So the church that restores is a church that embraces, embraces confronting sin. It's a church that follows God's direction. And finally, it's a church, and I love this part, that extends grace and forgiveness. It's a church that extends grace and forgiveness. And I like the way that Jesus unpacked this. He used all his knowledge and techniques as a rabbi, as a master, as a god. And he just not explained to them. He answered their question and he brings a parable. Read with me, verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. As many as seven times? It looks like a good idea, isn't it? Jesus said to him, I do not say you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, and then he brings this parable. So Peter may have a a, a clear understanding about what forgiveness means, what grace means. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who which to settle accounts with his servant when he began to settle. One was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents and since he could not play. His master ordered him to be sold with his wife, everything. His wife and children, all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his, need, his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. That's not true, but he did it. He said it. And out of pity for him, the master of, what, of the servant Released him and forgave him the debt. Does this sound familiar? But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants. Who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with the same words that he used. Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused. And went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! That's what you are, what you don't forgive. I forgave you all that debt because you you plead to me, with me. And you should not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly father, Jesus concludes. He concludes very similar than the Lord's prayer. Do you know that, Matthew 6? So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, means that probably you do not understand what you have been forgiven. Once more, Peter, our dear Peter, has the courage to ask Jesus a question about this process. In the case of a brother who sins repeatedly, how many times do I forgive him? And let's take a moment to try to grasp the context of the religious culture so you may understand why Peter came with this idea. According to the teaching of the Pharisee of that day, a Jew was only obligated to forgive the same person for three offenses. Three offenses. Like three strike: strike one, strike two, strike three, you're out. And after three offenses, a Jew legitimately, legitimately, could not deny forgiveness, could deny forgiveness to someone saying that I had I I already forgave that person. So to this teaching, forgiveness in Israel had to become something that you could win or something that you can deserve. It was a privilege. So come back to Peter. So what Peter is doing is, Peter was suggesting an even more compassionate offer than the religious leaders of that time. Jesus, uh, Peter was offering a superior standing. I can see Peter trying to impress Jesus. Hey, Jesus, what about seven times? Is the number, you know, you like that number seven. <laughs> but Jesus responded that, Seven times is not right. And Jesus gives a number not because he is establishing a literal limit, because Peter doesn't understand, but he wants to break his paradigm. And once again, Jesus has a great opportunity to disciple his disciples about a topic that will be important. For every single day of their lives. They will be rejected. They will be offended. They will be persecuted. They need to understand what forgiveness and grace means. Jesus is saying the way that God views mercy and forgiveness is very different from how Peter viewed it. It's very different. And I praise the Lord. And I think we should praise the Lord. We should praise the Lord. That is not how God gives us forgiveness. Jesus explained how it really works, and now Jesus, what he, do, he does, he uses a parable. Let me see if you understand, because you don't understand. Like, let me give you a parable. And Jesus seeks to remind them that the way and the path to restoration is based on forgiveness. If there is no forgiveness, there can be no restoration. Forgiveness is offered exclusively by the Lord and on his terms. And maybe you may say, hey, there's not a limit. Well, in the process of restoring someone, of course, the church can set certain standards of future behavior according to the Bible teaches. We should ask them, you ask them to restore with those that have been hurt so as to bring about reconciliation. So we may ask them to restore the damage caused. And in some cases, sin may require someone to leave a leadership role in the body. But in every case, repentance is enough for restoring full fellowship. And finally, Jesus gives this illustration, this parable. You read it. And Jesus began this parable with, therefore, because what I told you, seven times, 17 times seven, therefore, I hope that you can forgive unconditionally. In the parable, what we have, we have a king who is setting account with his servant. And this example, the king has allowed the servant to accumulate enormous debt. A talent. Let me tell you this: a talent was a measure of weight equal to 70 pounds of silver. So the debt was 750,000 of pounds of silver. And I made the math. I went to Google. And I asked Google, what well, this week the worth of silver is 312.30 I mean 31230 cents per pound. So we can estimate that the debt of a servant was 234 million two hundred twenty-five thousand. This is impossible for any slave to pay. It's impossible. In that day, servants live and work in their master's house. And sometimes the master will let the servant to, be, to buy a credit. But these loans were to be paid off by working overtime in other days. So what happened here is Jesus is saying, hey, hey, this amount is impossible for this guy to pay. But then the fact, Jesus used the word in Greek, the merida, which is merida, meriada, which is the biggest number in Greek language. So he's saying, like, this number is the biggest number you can think, Peter. There's no other number higher. And the servant implores for compassion and begs for the king to be patient with him and promises to pay the debt. And the king knew that this debt could never be paid even though the servant was promising payments. He knew there's no way to produce that amount. So out of compassion, the king king forgives all of the debt. The king forgives all of the debts. Our king forgave all our debts. This is glorious. But what happened with the slave? He goes to those who owe him money for payment of their debts with him. And even though he had received so much mercy himself, he shows no mercy to others. And he finds a co-servant that owed him ten hundred denarius, which means three months of salary, and tries to make him pay. Do you get the point? Do you get the point? Our debt against the king has not comparison. And when we do not forgive, we are saying that the sin that was committed against us is greater than the one we have committed against God. That's what we are saying. When we don't forget, when we don't forgive, we' are saying that, "You know God, I am so righteous that I will not forgive him." but it shows lack of understanding of the debt that was paid. For our sins. When the king sees the servant's responses, he makes him pay his debt by torture. How long do you think it will take him to pay, to pay it off his debt? His whole life. Eternity. His whole life. But also his sins affect his family and his children. Jesus compared the, sin, the king's response to the view that the father has... Of us when we refuse to extend grace and forgiveness to our brothers and sisters. And thanks God that Jesus is giving us this parable to help us to understand what goes on when we don't forgive those who have offended us. So, a church that restores is a church that first embraces confronting sin with love, kind grace, truth. It's a church that follows God's instruction, but also it's a church that extends grace and forgiveness. Our king, brothers and sisters, our Lord and king forgave all our debt. He paid it all in the cross. And probably we will not understand what of this does it mean. That's why we, what, what we struggle to forgive. Because we don't understand in full. All our debt, your debts, your debts were paid it all in the cross. And you didn't have, you didn't have the money, the capacity, the works to pay. And because we have been granted with such mercy, God expects and commands his disciples to do the same. A church that restores is a church where its members extend grace and mercy. It's a church that understands the price that Jesus paid in the cross. It's a church that model love, kind, and forgiveness. A church that restores is a church where its members understand the gospel and understand forgiveness. Why? Because a distinguished mark of a Christian is forgiveness. Because he has understood that he has been forgiven by grace. You have been forgiven by grace. Christians, that's something something that we do. We extend grace. Christian forgives. One question, two questions to finish. Is first even a church... That shows this characteristic? Is that the church that we are? Is that the church that we want to be? A church that confronts sins, that follows God's direction, that extends grace and forgiveness? Remember, this is a call that God makes us individually that will be reflected corporately. There is someone that you need to forgive. I invite you to forgive anyone who has offended you and to restore any person that you have hurt. If you are not a Christian, if you are today and you are not a Christian, you know who you are in this story? You are the servant who owned 10,000 talents. There is no way that you can pay with your works, with your conduct. But it's a good news. There is one that paid for you. And he invites you to come to repent and to follow him. Let's pray. I will invite Kurt Corey, so he may lead us in corporate prayer, but let me pray. Dear God, thank you for your help. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. In your name. Amen.